Okay? That's the Christmas offering. Christmas Eve, which is coming up uh, in a week and a half or... No, a week. No. Someone help me. A week and a half. Yes. I just lost track of myself there. Uh, we're excited about what we're doing this year. We're, we're changing things a little bit from our routine of the last few years. We will still be back at Creswick Baptist Church. But we're going to actually start a little bit earlier than we have. At 5 p.m., we're going to start with just a, a very simple meal together of soup and bread and uh, drinks. Then we're going to have our service at 6, which is going to look the way that many of our services have looked on Christmas Eve. And then a little bit more standard at 7, we're going to have cookies and coffee and tea, okay? So uh, we're going to provide the soup, meaning uh, us as the the staff. Uh, We're going to provide the soup, so you don't have to worry about that if you're coming at 5 p.m. But we would ask that you bring your grandmother's secret shortbread recipe for that after Uh, refreshment time, okay? But as Matt said last week, um, this is not something that we expect all of you to be at, okay? We know that many of you for the last 15 years have gone to Aunt Hazel's house for Christmas Eve dinner, okay? And we do not want to upset Aunt Hazel, okay? So um, if you have those plans or whatever, stick to them. But if you don't have anything going on uh, for Christmas Eve dinner, you know, you'd be eating it by yourself or, you know, you just, it's you and a couple people or you want to invite a neighbor out, we would love that, okay? So that'll be happening at 5 p.m. But again, we just come to whatever you feel comfortable coming to, all right? So that's Christmas Eve happening at Creswick Baptist Church. Then on December 29th, we will not be having a service, okay? There are, as you may have noticed, there are so many volunteers that go into these gatherings happening week after week. And so when we can, we like to give people a week off. And this is one of those natural Sundays to do that. Uh, So December 29th, we will not be gathered here. If you give every Sunday, if you're not set up on automatic giving or something, just keep that in mind that the last Sunday to give will be next Sunday uh, before we're into the new year. So just to remind you of that. But uh, no service on December 29th. Why don't you host a brunch or something, right? Have some neighbors over. Have breakfast together. I'm performing a couple of duties here in succession. We are now going to read our scripture for this morning. If you do not have a Bible, you are welcome to put up your hand, or if you just forgot yours, our Frontline's team has some spares, and we always say, take this with you. Uh, We are so delighted to give this gift to you if you do not have a Bible. We're going to be reading in 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7 give you a few seconds to get there. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, Cool entrance. <laughs> Let's keep that up. Are we okay here? We're good? There's still sort of like a bit of a lull, like something's coming in. What is it? UFO? Are we okay? 
sort of gone away. That was exciting. Wow. Welcome. Hey, my name is Matt. I am one of the pastors of our church family, specifically pastor of teaching and vision. So what that means is I get to help our church family as it relates to teaching most Sunday mornings and then also uh, continuing to encourage our family in the direction that we believe God's called us to go as a church. And so it is a joy to be together today. And we are in the middle of an Advent series. Now, some of you maybe have heard the word Advent, but you're like, what does Advent mean? And a couple of weeks ago, I defined what Advent is. And Advent is the anticipation of the arrival of a particular person or something that happened. And so that maybe brings a little bit of clarity to us as far as what Advent is. Advent is a season of about four weeks leading up to December 25th in which Christians historically have looked forward to the arrival of Jesus. But then it's also broader than that really is that Christians are looking forward to when Jesus said that he would come back and return uh, to this earth. And so this is a whole season where we are anticipating the arrival of Jesus. It's not just all about calendars and getting chocolate every single day. Or if you're like my kids uh, and their grandparents know them well, it's Advent Lego calendars where every day you open up that little door and there's this little Lego figure that you get to build, which has been a great measure of uh, enjoyment and a great measure of challenge to us as parents to love them well when they're fighting about it. So... Advent maybe has some mixed feelings for a lot of us, but it has been great to be together and to be focusing on the four themes of Advent, the four typical historical themes of Advent, which of course we begin at the beginning of this month talking about hope, that hope ultimately is not just some optimism for the future, but that Christian hope uh, is found in a person, namely Jesus. And that then last week, uh, Michael did a fantastic job talking about the nature of Christian peace, that Christians do not find peace in their circumstances, but that Christians find their peace also in a person, namely Jesus. And then today we are talking about love, and it sort of follows the same thing, that, that Christian love, at least the way that we view love, is not found in sentimental values or feelings, but ultimately in a person as well, and his expressed love to us. Now, we're going to jump in there, but why don't we for a moment take some time to just be still, to be quiet. I believe that God created us not just as thinking beings, but as feeling beings, as emotional beings. And so often what we think or how we think about things is affected by how we respond to things emotionally. So if you would take a moment to just be still, quiet, consider how you're feeling, and then I'll jump into this morning's message. So God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as a church family. We thank you for your gift of love to us. And I pray that this morning that you would meet us where we are, and reveal to us the nature of your love, and remind us, for those of us that, that, that know this love, of the depth of your love, and for those of us that are, have never experienced your love, to maybe experience it for the first time today. And so we thank you. It's a joy to be gathered. These are my brothers and my sisters, and I'm thankful for them and the opportunity that I have to serve them. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, general question to start us off, and then I'll introduce the topic a little bit more, but what is love? Now, some of you immediately are going to, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. And now many of us will have that song stuck in our heads for the remainder of this morning. But what is love? Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, some of you are familiar, I wasn't here, had some chairs fall in the back, hopefully they're okay. Um, we, uh, I was not here, uh, Spencer, I believe, was teaching uh, for me uh, back at the end of November. I was away, and uh, I, I'd said the week, I think in advance, or maybe afterwards, but I went to Buffalo, and I went to New Era Field to experience the Buffalo Bills play the Denver Broncos. And so I have a few pictures, because it's always fun to sort of live in the experience. And so this was where I was seated, uh, absolutely phenomenal. Um, my parents, uh, gave me these tickets for um, my, my birthday, which was back in June. So I had to wait a little bit for it, but my parents got us tickets, and so here we were. Yes, that is the 50-yard line, and yes, that is the visiting team's bench. Now, I'm not a Buffalo Bills fan. I'm there as a Denver Broncos fan. And so this next picture is who I was able to be there with. Uh, this is my father and I, obviously, on the left. Uh, I think you know which one's me. My dad is six foot eight. He's quite a tall fellow. My mom's not that tall, and so I ended up in the middle. Um, and so that's my dad and I on on the left. And then on the right, this is sort of a fanboy moment. You'll see number 58 and then beside him, you won't make out his number. But the name on the 58 is obviously Miller and the other side, you can't make it out. But that's Chris Harris Jr. And, um, and they are some of the biggest stars on the defensive side of the ball in uh, professional football. And so I was getting pretty excited because there I was and there they were. And I got to experience like, seeing them in the flesh, right? Now, you might be like, why are you telling us about this? And what does this have to do with love? Well, I love the Denver Broncos. Um, I think that's, that's obvious. Like, I'm fanboying. I'm there in the middle of this sea of blue for the Buffalo Bills. Todd Kilstra, stop talking while I'm preaching. I know you're a Buffalo Bills fan. And, um, and so... <laughs> They lost, yes, okay, thank you, thank you. So my heart was broken. But um, I, I very much uh, love the Denver Broncos. Um, but what's interesting about this word of love is that I love the Denver Broncos, but I also love my wife. Now, uh, you raise that question, like, obviously, no kidding, you love the Denver Broncos. Now, is the love that I have for my wife and the love that I have for the Denver Broncos the same? Probably not, but then what does that mean? What does that mean about love? And I think this raises a bit of a question of what is love? Is love purely sentimental feelings or is love something else? Um, there's a bit of a confusion, I would say, about love. Uh, oftentimes people are motivated by love to do things that are bad, right? You would, or even difficult towards somebody else. So for example, I have a picture here of some protests that have been happening recently. I'm not in any way making a comment about the nature of protests, but simply saying that a lot of times people engage in protests because they're passionate or they love a certain country, certain nationalism, and so it causes them to have debates. And very often it leads to quite angry uh, debates, uh, maybe less so of showing up on a protest line, maybe you've engaged of what these things are called as Facebook debates, where um, somebody makes a comment about something or a status change of how, what, what's going on with you, or what's the, what, why do we even have statuses anymore? What's the thing? What's going on in your life, but it, it's not become what's going on in your life anymore. It's like views. And then as a result, the comments go on and 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 on. And oftentimes people are motivated by love. Now I'd say a lot of people want love, right? Uh, I think that's fair to say. We all, we all want love, but I think many people are growing increasingly um, disinterested, potentially, in the idea of love, or maybe love is, is more complicated than we all thought it was in the very beginning. 
I think at the same time, we've also oversimplified love, meaning that we use the word love a lot, but maybe we've overused it and potentially we've begun to abuse it. So, all of this said, I think there's a bit of a confusion, a bit of confusion around what is love and what is the nature of true love. And so this morning, as we're talking about the topic of love, particularly as we approach Christmas Day and in the season of Advent, I want to look at what is the biblical view of love, both what it is and how can we remain motivated as a group of people to love other people. Because I would just say this off the bat, love is really difficult. Like when you hear somebody say, love, just love. I'm like, I love my wife, but it's really hard sometimes to love my wife and vice versa for her to continue to love me. So love is very difficult. Now, we arrive this morning at the text of 1 John 4, verses 7 to 11, and uh, maybe you were paying attention as Spencer read that or going through the text with us, and you recognize the nature of this passage in that John, who is writing, is writing to a group of churches. Uh, Some of us may not be familiar, but the Bible, much of it is a narration, and then we have this section of the Bible that are known as epistles or letters. And so what they are is a pastor, pastors or apostles, writing letters to churches that they either helped uh, start or churches that they uh, participated in in the very beginning. It'd be kind of like myself, you know, having begun uh, with a other group of people, this church family, and I move away, and I hear about things going on in this church here, Church of the City, Guelph, and I write you a letter. Uh, it might come in the form of an email, but a true mailed letter would be interesting, or I send it with somebody, I give it to them, and they arrive on horseback or in their vehicle, and they come in and say, hey everyone, I've got a letter from our pastor Matt, and he's somewhere else, and so he sent a letter based on what he's heard, and so, he, you know, they show up, and then they read the letter for us. This is very much what 1 John is about. It's a letter written to a group of churches in which John has some pastoral oversight. And so as we approach this, we have to understand that we're not just approaching some random words. We're approaching somebody who has a love relationship with a group of people who cares for them and wants their best and has their best interests at heart, as well as his own relationship with God. Now he's writing into a situation and into a context that is rather difficult. You might say, why is it difficult? It's difficult primarily because what is happening here is that in the churches there has been the formation of the church under a specific view under the teachings of Jesus but then as John has left others have come into the church and said you know what John said and you know that teachings those teachings about Jesus they're not actually true And so as a result, there's begun to be some division. It's not so unfamiliar to some of us who have been part of groups or communities in which there has been varying views about something, and then there becomes a split in communities. And so John is writing into this environment, into this context, to identify and to clear up some of the various views. And here, in this particular section of the letter, he's addressing one of the challenges that he knows is going on within the church, which is the fact that they're struggling to love each other. I think this is timely, (laughs) not only for our church family, but for our broader culture. How do we define what love is, and then how do we stay motivated as a community, not just a community internally, but a community externally, to love our city, and to love our country, and to love our world? What is the nature of that love? What would it look like in practice? 
And so here John writes, and so I think his words are timely, and I think they will help us understand to a greater extent how we ought to love one another, what it is, and how to stay motivated. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to John 4, verses 7, and we're going to be going through to 11. But as we typically do, we're just going to go through this line by line, and I'm going to help us understand what I think are important points to make as we go through it. So let's start in verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. He starts, Beloved. What an amazing address. He's about to make an appeal to love, and he starts with calling them the beloved. Isn't that interesting? That's such a beautiful way to address someone. Beloved. Beloved. What does he say? Let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, this isn't the first time in John's letter that he's brought up the topic of love. He touches on it in chapter 2, verse 10, and then 3, verse 11. And he's writing to this church, a group of Christians, and starting with, listen, beloved, you ought to love one another. You're, you're Christians who serve a loving God. You ought to love one another. Okay, well, what do you mean by the nature of love? What can we know about love? And he writes this, for love is from God. Love is from God. And then he goes on to say, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let's start with, for love is from God. What does this mean? It means that love has an origin, and that the origin of love is God. I think this is important for a couple of different things. One, it means that in order to understand the nature of what love is, we need to start with who God is, and then what God has done to show us his love, right? Secondly, it also means that love is not some random movement of atoms and our DNA and our biology, that love has a source. And the reason that humanity expresses and desires love and wants love to be given different than that of every other created being, and I'm thinking in this context, animals. I mean, there are not a group of zebras sitting on the Saharan desert somewhere in Africa right now debating what love is. Yet here we sit as a group of human beings who for many years have asked the question of what is love. Why are we asking that question? And this is the starting point of what John's going to encourage us with. Love is from God. Love has a source. And the source of love is God. He goes on to say, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If God is the origin of love, then those who love have been born of God. Now, this obviously raises an interesting question. Is, is he saying that everybody that loves is somebody that is born of God? And to interpret it specifically that way would miss what he said before. And he's, what he has said is that, no, he says, listen, there will be people who don't have a relationship with Jesus who will love others. And you might ask the question, well, why is that? And one of the first things is that we are created in the image of God as human beings. It's why we are different from every other created being. As we read the story of, in Genesis of the created world, we read that human beings are that, those beings that are made in God's image. And so as his image bearers, we will have love because God himself is love. Do you see the, see the sort of the progress of thought? He is the origin of love. What he creates will naturally be loving people, capable of loving things and people. So the origin of love is God, his created beings will. And then there's the common graces of God, that there are aspects of God's nature and his creation that we will all share regardless of whether or not we identify as followers of Jesus. But his point then is quite specific, not simply to say, listen, 
Those who are born of God will love, yes, or all those who express love are born of God, he's saying, but especially those who are Christians. To claim knowledge of God, to claim relationship with God will automatically lead to a loving life or a person who expresses love. He goes on in verse 8 to make it all the more challenging to us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary on this text, writes this. A person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. A person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. And we ask the question, well, well, why is that? He goes on, John goes on. Why is this? Because God is love. Now that's a significant thing to say about God. God is love. It's probably not something that you would say of another human being. That is love. Because certainly there would be things likely, and my wife could be a testament to this, that I do, that are not by nature loving. So for John to say, listen, those who love God ought to be loving people. Why? Because God is love, is to make a comment about God. What is the comment made about God? That God, by his nature, by his character, is going to be loving. That everything that he does is going to be motivated completely by love. Now, the interesting thing about this trait of God is that God is also other things. God is holy. God is just. And if you were to worship a being, if God does exist, you would want this God, I would think, to be loving, to be just. And that will mean that there will be things that God does that we will not understand. But by defining him as love, we then need to trust, again, if there is a God, that his actions and his desires are motivated by love. I hope this makes sense. Well, you might then ask the question, well, prove it. (laughs) So the origin of love is God, and God is love. Well, prove it. How does God love? How does he show his love? Let's get practical. How can I trust that God is love, and how does he define and provide a robust view of love? And John totally anticipates the question. And so in the next verse, he goes on to say this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, this is how God shows his love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let's start with the first part. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. So the question, how do we know that God is love and by nature loving? Answer number one, the coming and the sending of Jesus. The coming of Jesus. Now you might say, well, why is this a big deal? So maybe an illustration is helpful. Uh, This past Wednesday night, 
I have two sons. Uh, some of you may be familiar. Some of you are not. Two sons. The oldest one's name is Nixon. And Nixon's school had their Christmas concert. And so I have a picture of Nixon uh, with some of his uh, classmates. There he is in the middle. I created the box so you wouldn't have to wonder which one is he. That is Nixon. And this past Wednesday night, uh, Nixon had his Christmas concert. Now, Nixon is in senior cart kindergarten. Now, I would say of all the Christmas concerts that are going on in the world right now, the stakes on this are probably quite low. They actually held two different concerts. There's the junior and senior kindergarten uh, grouping, and then there was the uh, grade one up to grade eight. And I think the school was wise because the gym was packed just for the JKSK, and my family's a good example of why this was the case, okay? So I show up at five o'clock when Nixon is supposed to be there, I go into the gym, and I save a row of eight seats. Now, I despise being that person. You know those people, maybe you don't like being those people where you arrive early and you save a whole row and you're using mittens and gloves and like scarves, I just need body, okay? That guy's shirtless, I don't know, I guess he's saving his row. Like it's totally understood, right? Like I'm saving this row, and, um, the reason I'm saving this row is because Andrea's mom and dad are going to be there, and my parents are going to be there, and my, my sister-in-law is going to be there, and, and uh, their daughter, and I'm going to be there, and Andrea's going to be there. You ask the question, well, why? Because it's Nixon's Christmas concert, and we all want to be there to uh, obviously cheer him on and to support him. It's, it's a big deal, right? So our arrival, our coming is a big deal. Why? Because we want to show Nixon that we love him. We're, we're going to enjoy it, right? It's the same thing like at a wedding. Here's a picture of Andrea at our wedding, and this is her nan, uh, Nan Bercy from Newfoundland. Now, uh, she comes to our wedding, right, because Nan Bercy, Nan Bercy's awesome, and so she comes, and she shows up at our wedding, flies in from Newfoundland, and if you've been to a wedding or have been participants in a wedding, maybe the people that were getting married, generally, the first thank yous that the bride and groom make are to those that traveled from faraway distances to arrive, right? We just want to say thank you to, you know, Aunt Peggy, y'all, you flew in from, you know, Africa or whatever it might be, right? There's just different places that people arrive and come from. Now, I'm going to go into a little bit of what I think is the philosophy of why these arrivals or why these comings mean so much or why they, there's a gravity or, or a distinction between what one person arrival is, is important, the next one maybe is less important. And this is what I think it is, a couple of things. One is the status of the person that's coming. And in some ways, who this person is in relation to you. Right, so as much as it is, um, it was a distance that my parents traveled, like my mom sat in traffic on the 401 for about an hour and 45 minutes, I think, to get to this Christmas concert that lasted a total of 12 minutes. Um, I mean, she came, but her status of who she is, she's grandma, you know, and grandma wants to be at the Christmas concert, right? But there's a, a bit of a status difference. I mean, if, if someone that lives far away who, who means very, very little to you, you know, they travel the distance to be there, I mean, it's, wow, you you showed up. That's pretty interesting. Why'd you come? Like, I hardly know you. Um, but I think you understand a little bit of where I'm going. So the first is the status of the person who's coming. But then secondly, is the cost to that particular person, how far they've come, how much of a personal sacrifice it was going to be for them to be there. And so I hope this brings into view for us a little bit more of the coming of Jesus, of why is Jesus coming such a big deal and how does it express God's love? Well, this is the answer to that. Jesus coming expresses the depth of God's love because of who Jesus is, his status, and the cost to himself of being with us, the distance. Uh, some of you are familiar with this reality of Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? What's his status? 
John, in another one of his writings, John 1 verses 1 to 3 says this, in the beginning was the word, the word is the language for Jesus in this point, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So who is Jesus? The Bible is unequivocal in its claim that Jesus is not just a person, Jesus is also God. So who is this person? God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made. Then jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling in us. Jesus was not created by God to come. God put on flesh to be with us. The status of Jesus, God with us. The coming of Jesus expresses God's love because of who Jesus is. Incredible, but then his the cost Philippians 2 5 to 7 sort of describes this a little bit. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, what's the cost? He emptied himself. He emptied himself so that he could be with us. So how does God express his love to us? Number one, the coming of Jesus. But then there's a second answer to this, and it comes in the second part of the verse. Answer number two is the purpose of his coming. The purpose of his coming. Verse nine, the second part, so that we might live through him. Another writing of John, John 3, verse 16, says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the coming of Jesus, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know, in the same way, if we're thinking back to Nixon's Christmas, why are my parents, why are these people making a sacrifice to be there? They're being there so they can enjoy the concert and, and, and express their love, right? That's their purpose, What we're told here is that Jesus comes to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. That God shows his love, he sends Jesus, and what is the purpose of his coming? He rescues us. Jesus comes to rescue us. He's there for a great purpose, at great cost to himself. He comes to earth to rescue us, and this is the storyline of the entirety of the scriptures, that in the very beginning, we were in perfect relationship with God. Humans rebelled against God, and that rebellion created a separation. And we either do enough good things to bridge this gap, which is never going to be the case. What we read in the scriptures is that God says, I will solve this for you, I will rescue you, and it's through God putting on flesh to dwell among us to give us, to free us. So God the Father sends Jesus the Son to do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. John then goes on, he continues about the nature of true love as he said, okay, God manifests his love among us and that he sent Jesus so we could live through him. We could have a relationship with God restored so we could be rescued. He continues though with the nature of true love. Verse 10, in this is love, Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word. Let's do this slowly. John here now is attempting to provide even greater clarity to the depth of God's love for us. Here's what he's saying. God loved us when we didn't love him. God loved us when we didn't love him. 
Therefore, yes, God shows his love by sending Jesus, but he does so for those who are actually opposed to him and may not reciprocate his love. God's love extends to his enemies, enemies, the ones not easy to love. And isn't this, some of us are familiar with the teachings of Jesus, not just familiar with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but some of his teachings. Listen to this about what Jesus says about love. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 44. He says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, and I think a lot of us and those in our culture would say, That's pretty good. Yeah, love your neighbor, dislike your enemy, or hate your enemy. But listen to what Jesus says. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So love must be more than just sentimental feelings because who has sentimental feelings for people that have hurt them or their enemies? Yet this is what Jesus teaches. How about activities of love? Luke 14, verses 13 to 14, Jesus teaches this. When you give a feast or when you have a dinner party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Well, why will you be blessed? Because they cannot repay you. This is hilarious and very hard of what Jesus is teaching, right? He says, I want you to love the people difficult to love. Actually, when you express love, I want you to invite people or be engaged in the life of people that will not be able to reciprocate the love back. Maybe you've been in one of those situations where you are a person that gave uh, some cookies in a container to somebody else. And some people have the approach that's like, well, I'm not going to give the container back empty. So I'm going to make cookies, put them in the container, and give them back. Jesus says, make sure you give cookies to you, somebody that you know will never be able to provide cookies back to you. That's the nature of true love. And why does Jesus teach these things? Well, this is why I think Jesus teaches this, the way that he lives. Because Jesus knows that his life and his teaching will culminate in his death, an enactment in the flesh of how he lived and what he taught, defining for us what love truly is. That in his life and in his teaching, it then culminates in his death, which is an enactment in the flesh of what he taught. Now, some of us don't like to think of ourselves as enemies of God. But the scriptures say that we, apart from this bridge that Jesus does in restoring our relationship with God, are enemies of God. Yet what Jesus does is he loves us prior to us loving him. That he does something for us that we could not do for himself with no guarantee of that love being reciprocated. So we ask the question then, well, what is love? Here is what I believe is the biblical answer based on what we have just been taught looking at the example of Jesus. This is what it is. Love is action. Love is action that seeks the well-being of others, even enemies, expecting nothing in return and with no guarantee that it will be reciprocated. Love is action. You know, it's very easy, and some of us are familiar with this as um, being those in close relationship with other people. It's far easier to say that you love someone. It's far more difficult to express that love in action, right? But here, what is Jesus saying? The word agape is the, is the Greek for this type of love. Agape, it's love is action that seeks the well-being of others, even enemies, expecting nothing in return and with no guarantee that it will be reciprocated. 
There's an example um, during the Second World War. There was a woman, some of us maybe are familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom. Corey was a watchmaker with her family in, uh, in Holland. And uh, when, the, when the Germans invaded, uh, Jews were obviously, the risk of, to their lives was significant. You can read about her story in the book that she wrote called The Hiding Place, or there's a movie called The Hiding Place. It's not going to be 4K, so go in with uh, proper expectations. But the story of what, of what they did, and, and she was actually captured by the Nazis when she was found out what she was doing. Uh, it's estimated that she helped free about 800 people, but she was then taken to a concentration camp and expressed persecution herself because of what she did. What, what she did, we could define, if we look here at the biblical definition of love, that that is true love. By nature, loving, doing something at great risk to herself and no guarantee that the love that she would receive would be reciprocated, the love that she gave would be reciprocated. That's the love that God expresses towards us in the manifestation, the coming of Jesus, and in the purpose of his coming. Well, then we ask the question, well, then how do we respond? Verse 11 after John has defined for us the nature of what true love is, he says, beloved, once again returning to who we are, we are the beloved ones, beloved by God. If God so loved us, saying if, if God loved us in this way, what are our response to be? We also ought to love one another. What's his point? He's saying if we have been recipients of incredible love and generosity, we must love one another. It's a complete restatement of what he has already said before. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for others. Again, Howard Marshall says this, All claims to knowledge of God by people who fail to love their brothers are false and deceitful. All claims to knowledge of God by people who fail to love their brothers are false and deceitful. Why? Because if you've experienced God's incredible love towards you, you will be transformed into a person of love, someone that loves other people. Now, I would say that there are barriers uh, to to receiving and then experiencing God's love, and I want to touch on them a little bit. I would say this is more of the barrier for the religious person. I think for the religious person, your struggle and barrier to receiving God's love, to truly understand what God has done for you in through, through the coming of Jesus, is your own shame and your own feelings of being unworthy. You know, if you were to struggle, and I think we would struggle with the kindness of someone's traveling to our wedding, you know, like if you think about some of these people that made the travel, you're like, I am so unworthy. Like you did, made all of this travel arrangements for me. Oh my goodness, this is crazy. And you can feel unworthy about that then when you think about the gravity or the nature or the wideness of God's love for you shown to you through Jesus, it's like, how do I receive that? Like, I am unworthy. And many people live in cycles of shame because it's like, surely God doesn't love this part of me. But that's not the case. God shows his love for us in that while we were his enemies, he died for us. And if God is all-knowing, he completely knows completely who you are. As I've heard one person say, you were like a pane of glass before God. And if you're going to serve a God and worship God, you want him to be that way so that he's worthy of your worship and praise and honor. But then secondly, I think there's barriers for those of us that might consider ourselves not believers or irreligious. And that is the hypocrisy and the imperfect love of Christians. 
And this is where Christians got to own the fact that we have done a poor job both expressing love to one another and to the watching world. And many people live by saying, I don't want anything to do with Christians and their God because they are not very loving. Now, some of this might be based on a different definition of love, but for a lot of people, it's like, I want nothing to do with your, your God and your Christians because of your Christians' expression of love. But here's the challenge to this worldview is to say, don't let the imperfect love of Christians hold you back from the perfect love of God. Don't let the imperfect love of Christians hold you back from the perfect love of God. And to both groups, I would simply offer this verse from Romans 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is so important because I know that for both the religious and for the irreligious, we struggle to understand God's love, his love for us. And having a clearer picture of understanding God's love comes through God the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our hearts so that we can more fully understand it, experience it, and then offer it to other people. And that's how John would say, you want to know how your love can be motivated? Continue to go and look at Jesus. Continue to go back and look at God's love for you expressed through the coming of Jesus. That, that is the place that you need to go to be motivated. Look at the greatest love ever shown to you and now go and love others. That's where it starts. A couple of clarifying things as I think it's helpful. This is what I did a few weeks ago when I talked about forgiveness because I think as C.S. Lewis said, everybody loves forgiveness until they have somebody to forgive. I think the exact same thing can be said of love, right? Everybody loves the idea of love until they have somebody to love that's really hard to love, right? So what is love and what isn't love? Well, number one, here's what love is. Love is really difficult, Can we just, like, I just want to say that again. Like, love is difficult, especially what I've defined as love through the scriptures here. Seeking the well-being of someone else that's not necessarily going to reciprocate that love back. Like, that is really, really hard to do. So love is difficult. So when someone says, you know, just love, like, it's okay to say back, listen, I understand that I need to probably love in this situation, but love is really hard. It's very difficult. Secondly, love has a cost. Love has a cost. You know, as we talked about with forgiveness, like when you forgive somebody, um, you're oftentimes, there's been a, a damage that's been done. So, you know, very simple example, you back up into my van. I have the choice. Am I going to forgive you? I can forgive you, but there's still a cost. You've dented my van. And I love my van. <laughs> Sentimental feeling, Right? <laughs> I think you understand the point. There, there's a cost to love. So love is difficult. Love is costly. I think thirdly, though, if we're truly going to love the way that Jesus loved us, love is being willing to be misunderstood. Love is being willing to be misunderstood. The, 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 we look at the way that other people view love in our world, and we make steps. It's our action towards others. And others look on that and are like, hold on. Like, you're, by nature, you disagree with that person. So why are you continuing to show them love? It's like, well, you know, I'm willing to be misunderstood because of love. Jesus was misunderstood. You know, so love expressed is being willing to be misunderstood. And some of us don't like that because we're, we're very conscious of our own status and how other people view us. But you've got to let that go. 
if, if you really want to be a person engaged with love. And as a follower of Jesus, it's an expression of your faith in God to love others. This is the byproduct, right? That, that I love God as a result that my byproduct of my life as I look at his love is going to be to love other people. And then fourthly, and this is important, and, and I think this is, is helpful as well, is that I believe love can maintain personal convictions. You know, Jesus loved us uh, prior prior when we were still sinners it says christ died for us like, like, jesus loved us when we were when we were enemies when we rejected him he still loved us he didn't, he didn't minimize his personal convictions you know if you think about that that protest image that i showed you earlier what would be the the enacted bit of love it's to walk across to the other side of the street maybe your side of the protest has coffee and things it's to walk to those on the other side of the street and say listen you're probably thirsty too you're probably cold as well would you like some coffee? That in no way means that you are suddenly agreeing with them. It simply means that, hey, my posture towards you is going to be different. We can disagree, but I can still love you. Um, I think what Tim Keller said something helpful on this point, in that you can love someone without agreeing with them, and you can disagree with someone without hating them. You can love someone without agreeing with them. You can disagree with someone without hating them. And I think parenting is a great example of this, right? <laughs> you know, well, if, if truly, you know, everything that Nixon or Cade brought up and I disagreed with them on was uh, suddenly I don't love them anymore because I'm not giving them whatever they want, am I truly loving? No, and you can love somebody without agreeing with them and you can certainly disagree with someone without hating them. In closing, and this is a challenge to those of us who are followers of Jesus as a summation of what John has already said. John says this in chapter 13, verse 35. He's quoting Jesus, and this is what Jesus says to those that are his disciples. In other words, those that are his apprentices. Says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, there's a great risk and reward in what Jesus has said. The risk is that if we don't show love one to one another, people will not know our Jesus. The great reward is that when we are showing love towards one another, that people can be exposed to the great good news of Jesus, his love, the rescue, his coming, all of these things. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to look at love. And God, I, I live with the conviction that this view of love is the most robust and most important view of love that our world has to offer because it's expressed to us by you, someone outside of time, outside of space, yet took on flesh entering into space and time to express your deep love. Not only you, God, are the origin of love, but you are by nature, your character is love. And so, God, we want to, as your people, be a people of love. And so convict us if we have not. Draw us back to the nature of who you are. And God, I pray, again, that if anyone has, has never experienced your love, that your Holy Spirit would soften their hearts today. May they see you more clearly for who you are and love you more fully and as a result, love others exceptionally. May our activity, our attitude and what those think of us 
as followers of Jesus here, we call ourselves Church of the City, might a character trait of ours be love. Love is action, even towards our enemies, expecting nothing in return. We thank you.